Brazil in emergency mode. Today, Friday, June 21st, this is The World. I'm Carol Hills, filling in for Marco Werman. Brazil's government held an emergency meeting today as protests continue to rock the South American nation. The demonstrators have many demands and no leaders, and that makes it tough for Brazilian President Dilma Rousseff. She has not yet come to the nation and addressed all these issues. Who is she going to speak with? And second, how she's going to answer to all those demands at this stage. Also, what it's like to live with disabilities in Europe and Russia. And later, an American teenager plans her trip to a sloth sanctuary in Central America. Sloths are like really peaceful, peaceful creatures, and they're pretty easy to get along with. So, I mean, we should be able to hold them and play with them a little bit. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who make a difference in their communities. More on how nonprofits can earn a grant at liveongiveon.org. I'm Carol Hills, filling in for Marco Werman, and this is The World. Brazil's government is in emergency mode. Today, President Dilma Rousseff held a crisis meeting with her cabinet in response to the massive protests that have swept through the country over the past week. Last night, an estimated one million demonstrators took to the streets of cities throughout Brazil. The protesters are angry about a government that it says delivers poor basic services while spending billions of dollars to prepare for hosting sporting events like the World Cup and the Olympics. Last night, as before, many of the protests were peaceful, but some turned ugly, and at least one protester was killed in the state of Sao Paulo. Tom Hennigan is in the city of Sao Paulo. He's South American correspondent for the Irish Times. And Tom, what's the scene today in Sao Paulo? Well, today it's pretty quiet after another massive demonstration in the centre of the city last night where over 100,000 people were on the streets. Um, But already, uh, while it's quiet out in the city, the social networks are just buzzing. Um, a lot of the people who came out last night, as in other cities around Brazil, are already debating when they're going to march again. We don't have any sort of organized leadership to this movement, so we're not really sure which of the marches being organized online will uh, get the same numbers of people out um, or when they will actually be. But uh, we are expecting more demonstrations sometime this weekend. I know last night a protester was hit by a car and died, and the the driver of that car apparently drove into the crowd. So it seems to suggest that not everyone is sympathizing with the protesters. Is that what you're seeing? Well, in that situation, we don't know exactly what the driver thinks about the protest, but we do know that he was with his family in his uh, Land Rover, and he was attempting to drive by one of the demonstrations, and protesters said, no, look, we've occupied this road, you can't drive in here. There was some sort of an argument, and he just accelerated into the crowd. So that situation, it's hard to know exactly what driver thought about the protest or whether it was just the heat of the moment situation. But there are, I would just from talking to people in the street every day for the last week, uh, even people who are not going out in the demonstrations on the whole are supporting them and saying, look, you know, someone has to say enough is enough. There's too much corruption in this country and it's great that the young people are going out and making a lot of noise about the situation. I'm curious, do you get a sense that while there isn't a sort of single political party represented and the protesters represent a lot of issues, is there coordination between the various cities across Brazil about when the next demonstration is going to take place and how it's going to take place? No, there's no coordination that we're able to track. Um, But what we do know is that there are local groups of people in each city, and they are, of course, 
looking at what's going on in the other cities, seeing what's going on on TV, and there, and that's how it started. Sao Paulo was the epicenter of this movement. There were a series of protests here. And then people in other cities saw on the news what was happening, were reading what the Sao Paulo protesters were saying online about the, about the protest. And they said, you know what, we've got these problems in our cities as well, so we're going to go out in the street. So it's a very diffuse movement at the moment. There is no leadership, there's no real set agenda of demands, and there's even disagreements within the protesters. Last night here in Sao Paulo, there were uh, some small radical left-wing groups who the protesters expelled from the march. And they, once they were expelled, they were saying, look, this is fascism. You know, why can't we protest? Brazil isn't a dictatorship anymore. So it's very fluid at the moment within the demonstrations, and it's too early really to say if there's any leadership emerging to them. Irish Times correspondent Tom Hennigan speaking to us from Sao Paulo. That lack of leadership among the protesters is also a challenge for Brazilian President Dilma Rousseff. She's being criticized for reacting too slowly to the unrest. Mauricio Mora is a Brazilian economist and currently a visiting scholar at George Washington University. He says Rousseff is in a tough position because the protesters have so many demands, yet no one leader to open a dialogue with. I think she has two points to address. First one is who she's going to speak with, and second, how she's going to answer to all those demands at this stage. It must be kind of strange for Dilma Rousseff. I mean, she protested against the government way back in the day and suffered for it. Tell our listeners a little bit about her background. Oh, she was a political activist in the end of the 60s during our military dictatorship, and she was actually arrested, and she spent like two years in prison. However, I should say that it was a very different times. Right now, Brazil is a democracy. So the way that the institutions are handling those protests are very, very different. From your perspective, what could she do to assuage the protesters? I think one of the things good about the protests about transportation, uh, two days ago, the mayor of Rio and the mayor of Sao Paulo and the governor of Sao Paulo, big states of Brazil, they came to national TV and they explained it in, in details how they're pricing the transportation. And that means that people are demanding much more accountability from the, the public servants, and that includes the president. So she will have, for example, to speak more openly and discuss more the issues of the costs of the World Cup, for example. Some people in Brazil claim, and there's a lot of claims about this one, that the initial budget for the World Cup uh, was surpassed five times and most of coming from public funding. So she'll have to address those questions more openly. And that, will, I think, will generate much more accountability in our politicians. As an economist, I mean, what do you think about those sort of cost overages and the focus on the cost of these huge public events? I mean, Brazil has known for a while it's going to do these things, and it seemed at the time when they were awarded to Brazil, there was a lot of excitement in the country. What, what's caused all the upset now? I think, first of all, Overall, it's not only about Brazil. There is lack of discussions about the real legacy of those events, the real cost-benefit analysis for the overall population of World Cup and, and Olympic Games. Or we, we have seen Greece, Athens, and London, and Barcelona, and they have a huge cost for, for public money. In the case of Brazil, what happens is that in the initial budget for the World Cup, I had considered that 70% of the funding would come from the private sector. And exactly happened the opposite, and the, the budget has increased a lot. So that's the main concern. You know, we're seeing thousands of people in the streets all over Brazil, but are there certain Brazilians and a sizable number who actually support these events because they think they agree that these events really will help Brazil? I mean, is there is there sort of a big opposition to the opposition on the streets that we're just not hearing from? 
We had a poll saying that 41% of the Brazilians do not support the protests in the streets, but on the other hand, 57% support. Still, the support for the World Cup itself is very high. It's around 70% of the population. And I guess I have to ask you what your own reaction was when Brazil was awarded these events, and has your own view of them changed over time? My concern would be exactly what's going on right now, that in the end of the day, the public source of funding would step up and finance those events. And that would be bad for Brazil, and that's what people are, are complaining. So that was my initial concern. On the other hand, the Brazilian population loves football and very well connected with soccer, so they were overall very supportive of hosting the World Cup. Mauricio Mora is an economist from Brazil. Currently, he's a visiting scholar at George Washington University. Thanks, Professor Mora. Thank you. From the beginning, the protests in Brazil have been given wall-to-wall coverage by the nation's media. Contrast that to the situation in Turkey, another country that's been rocked by massive protests. There, mainstream news networks failed to broadcast the first days of unrest and the police crackdown that followed. Turkish demonstrators and viewers were outraged. A few have taken matters into their own hands and created their own alternative media outlets. Dalia Mortada has the story from Istanbul. My name is Mustafa. I am 30 years old. By day, Mustafa Aldemir is a software engineer, but at night, he transforms into a goggle and gas mask wearing citizen journalist. Actually, we we are activists. We say that our, we are activists and we are doing journalism because the journalists are not doing their job. His engineering skills come in handy running the live stream online channel Chuppel TV. He and his friends launched it to show the protests in Gezi Park that the Turkish mainstream media were ignoring. In just two weeks, Chuppel TV has gotten over two million views, tens of thousands of followers on Twitter, and donations from all over the world. They've received two high-definition cameras, an audio mixer, a laptop, and some microphones. Their studio is mobile, so they can broadcast from wherever. When police cleared Gezi Park last weekend, Chuppel TV was live inside the park. A tear gas canister landed in their makeshift studio. The crew donned gas masks and continued to broadcast until the police kicked them out. Then, they went to another part of town and broadcast the clashes there between protesters and police. Of course we are... We are scared, but we take our cautions like wearing a helmet and a mask and running as fast as we can when needed. But we believe that we should do it. Someone should do it. Since nobody else is doing it, we have to do it. At this point, Chuppel TV only broadcasts when people are around after work, like in the evenings or on the weekends. And Mustafa says they'll need more volunteers to keep it going longer term. I hope that after some time, some professional Guys will come and take this job back. Korhan Varol says he was ready to go live from Gezi Park when the police first tear-gassed the peaceful demonstrations. But his network wasn't. He's a senior correspondent for NTV, one of Turkey's largest TV news outlets. Korhan says that when he got back to the NTV headquarters, the network only gave him 30 seconds of airtime to report the news. I was angry. The people were angry. The people, the protesters were there and they said, show this, show this. We were shooting, but we were not alive. It was a bad day for me, really, because something was happening there and I couldn't report it live. Korhan says he still covered what was happening. He live-tweeted what he saw to his few thousand Twitter followers. 
Eventually, NTV did start broadcasting news of the protest after they drew international attention. The company's head even issued a public apology for failing to broadcast the initial events. But for the protesters, it was too little, too late. Demonstrators in Istanbul marched to NTV's headquarters on June 3rd, three days after the initial police crackdown. Protesters chanted, sell out media, waving cash in their hands. NTV aired that live. The waving cash was a jab at Turkey's media tycoons, who have big investments in industries that rely on government contracts. Korhan of NTV says that's probably why they're leery of angering the government. So there's self-censorship, as well as heavy-handed government control. NTV wasn't the only outlet getting criticized. CNN Turk aired a documentary about dolphins and penguins while people were out demonstrating. So critics started using the penguin as a symbol of the media's silence. Korhan says protesters have been unforgiving even after the channel started broadcasting the demonstrations. Many people, the target is you. Why? Because of your company. I think it's horrible. But he doesn't blame the protesters for their anger. He's even impressed with the live stream channels that have sprouted up. I think this shows us if something happens like this, from now on, they will make their own media, the protest media, let's say. Mustafa says he can imagine a permanent place for some kind of protest media, but he'd still like the mainstream guys to do their jobs. For The World, I'm Dalia Mortada in Istanbul. This is PRI, Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from Medtronic, now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation, a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who make a difference in their communities. More on how nonprofits can earn a grant at liveongiveon.org. I'm Carol Hills, and this is The World. When Reed Davenport was in college, he planned to spend a semester abroad. He got into a program in Florence, Italy. But he was strongly discouraged from attending after program officials learned he has cerebral palsy. That could have been the end of the story. Instead, it gave him a powerful idea. Bridget McCarthy reports. Reed Davenport welcomes me to a small apartment in downtown Washington, D.C. Hi. Hi. How are you? Good. Davenport is cheerful and clean-cut. He graduated from George Washington University last spring with a degree in journalism and is now living on his own. He says his parents raised him to be self-reliant. I have challenges, but everyone has challenges. He can walk, but he uses a wheelchair most of the time. He says, for one thing, people stare at him less when he's in the wheelchair. It kind of explains a lot. Davenport has to work a lot harder to get the words out, but he didn't want me to use a voiceover for him. In fact, in addition to being a freelance reporter, he's an occasional public speaker. His cerebral palsy gives him a unique perspective. And at times, it therapy for me to worry about what I go through with. I like you have my voice heard. He says he likes to have his voice heard. During his junior year in college, Reed hoped to study in Italy. But when the program officials learned he used a wheelchair, they talked him out of it because of the lack of accessibility. He was disappointed. But then he began to wonder, what's it like for people with physical disabilities in Europe? Last winter, Davenport went with a cameraman to find out. He produced a documentary about the trip. It's called Wheelchair Diaries. 
Davenport was shocked by how hard it was to get around because so few buildings, public transportation, even sidewalks were wheelchair accessible. You've been such a progressive society it was a juxtaposition between the progressive society and the lack of accessibility. He interviewed people from Ireland, Belgium, France, and Italy, including Carlotta Bazzazzi, director of the European Disability Forum. There are uh, around uh, 14% of people with disability in, in Europe, so they are not first-class citizens. There is a lot of discrimination. Davenport learned that discrimination takes different forms there. People with disabilities are also much less visible than in the United States. He went around Brussels with a journalist named Francois, who also has cerebral palsy and uses a wheelchair. There weren't even curb cuts in the sidewalks, so Davenport had to ride in the street alongside traffic. He and Francois spent several hours just trying to find a place to eat. Nothing was accessible. Here's Francois. It's always a vicious circle. Like, if you don't accessibilize your building, people would stay at home. And if people with disabilities stay at home, the responsible for buildings as accessibility would say, what's the point of getting it accessible because no one's using it? Davenport says in order for people with disabilities to be included and win social acceptance, they first need to be able to get through the door. So why has Western Europe done relatively little to accommodate people with physical disabilities? I mean, the obvious answer and the excuse I hear all the time is, oh, it's older. And the old buildings just can't be made wheelchair accessible. But Davenport doesn't buy it. He thinks it's mostly indifference. We're not talking about restructuring one of the seven wonders of the world, he says. We're talking about putting a ramp up, making sure public transportation is accessible. On the other hand, Reed Davenport says people in Europe were always willing to help. In Naples, a group of 14-year-old boys carried him in his wheelchair on and off of a bus. He questions whether that would happen in the United States. And a repairman in Brussels fixed his broken wheelchair for free all of which makes it hard for him to generalize about countries or cultural attitudes towards disability. There were closed-minded people in Europe, but there are closed-minded people in the United States. People help me in Europe, people help me in the United States. So it's almost impossible to pinpoint a difference in that respect. Maybe it's more about individual empathy. Gavin, an Irishman with chronic progressive muscular dystrophy, who appears in wheelchair diaries, put it this way. The moment you know somebody in a wheelchair is the moment you look at the world differently. You start to see it the way they see it. Reed Davenport's documentary, Wheelchair Diaries, is being shown at film festivals around the country. For The World, I'm Bridget McCarthy. People with disabilities used to be invisible in Russia. Yulia Simonova remembers it that way. The World's Jennifer Gorin has her story. When Yulia Simonova was 10 years old, she was doing a gymnastics routine. She had an accident, and she fell and broke her back. After several surgeries, she ended up in a wheelchair, at home, isolated. I couldn't go out from my building, and uh, I lived on the fourth floor uh, without any elevator, and I was just tucked uh, in my house. And that's the way it used to be for disabled people in Russia. They couldn't get out of their homes. They couldn't go to school, so they were effectively invisible. But with support, Yulia got out of her fourth-floor apartment and went to school. 
and when she was 18, she spent a year as an exchange student in the U.S. She says that year changed the way she viewed things. Because uh, in America, I even uh, didn't notice that uh, I'm different, that I use a wheelchair. It was normal. When she went back home, she began giving speeches about how things could be different for people with disabilities. That was more than a decade ago. She says things are starting to change in Russia. You now see ramps for wheelchairs in Moscow, though she says they're often too steep to use, and oblivious people park their cars in front of them. But buses and subways are becoming wheelchair accessible, at least in the cities. In my opinion, it should be more more faster. Because uh, I travel a lot, and uh, I see the situation in different countries. Yulia Simonova works on inclusive education for the Russian disability group Perspectiva. She says children with disabilities are increasingly going to school in regular classrooms. And she says when she speaks at schools, kids ask her all kinds of questions. For example, children asked me, how do you sleep in your wheelchair? Or how do you dress in your wheelchair? She doesn't mind. She says she thinks that young people in Russia are much more open to people with disabilities. Old people, yes, they uh, still have strong stereotypes and they feel pity for people with disabilities. But young people, they don't. There are other signs that Russia is changing. Last year it ratified the UN Convention on Persons with Disabilities, something the U.S. hasn't done. And then there's the Paralympics. Russia's Paralympic team came in second in the overall medal count in London last year. Yulia Simonova says it gave Russians a sense of pride. Next year, Russia hosts the Winter Games in Sochi. And Yulia says she's applied to carry the torch for the Sochi Paralympics. So I I hope people choose me and I will do it. I want to show our society, other people, that people with uh, disabilities are independent, are educated, are beautiful, and stuff like that. For The World, I'm Jennifer Gorin. This is PRI, Public Radio International. I'm Carol Hills. Coming up, Daniel's from Brazil, but he and husband James got married in New York. Now an upcoming Supreme Court ruling could determine whether Daniel can stay in the U.S. or whether he has to go. The thing that pulls us through six years ago or now is that we're very strong people who love each other very much. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who are making a difference in their communities. Learn how nonprofit organizations may earn a $20,000 grant at liveongiveon.org. I'm Carol Hills, filling in for Marco Werman. This is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. Peace talks between the U.S. and the Taliban got bogged down this week, even before they started. But with or without those talks, the withdrawal of American troops from Afghanistan is continuing on schedule. All U.S. combat troops are to be out of the country by the end of 2014. And the Pentagon is already making tough decisions about how to manage the drawdown. That includes reducing the number of cooked meals available to the troops. Until recently, because of the -the round-the-clock nature of war, the U.S. military has been offering most troops in Afghanistan four hot-cooked meals a day. 
Now that's in the process of being reduced to just two hot meals a day. That's a bad idea, according to David Brown, an Army veteran of Afghanistan and now an author and journalist who writes under the name D.B. Grady. What's the problem here, David? Well, to a certain extent, it's self-evident. You've got people who are running missions at night, and when they come back from these missions, highly stressful activities, they have no food to eat, or they're handed an MRE and said, go about your business. Those MREs, meals ready to eat, what's wrong with them? Um, I wouldn't call it food. (laughs) (laughs) They don't quite achieve what a hot meal does? That's correct. Sitting down and breaking bread with your comrades has a, a psychological value that you just, you just can't get from a plastic, hermetically sealed uh, meal. In The Atlantic this month, you write about the difference a good midnight meal made to you and your whole unit when you were serving. Tell us about that. Well, when you consider the general inhospitable climate that a war zone can be, certainly Afghanistan is not the most pleasant place in the world, being able to sit down across from your comrades over a meal where everyone, to a certain extent, has let their hair down, um, it, it's... It's a stress reliever, and it's also a way of building solidarity with your brothers-in-arms. In in your article, you write about how this one enlisted guy who became your cook, or the cook for your unit, he made this huge difference in the morale of your whole team there. Tell us about him. Well, when he arrived in country, he, he he was an army cook, and his job was to do what army cooks typically do, which is to heat up meals from wherever it is the army acquires their mysterious cuisine. You could tell that this pained him. This was this was his job. This was something that he was going to do and be proud of. This was his time in a combat zone. And finally, he, he took the initiative and he decided he was going to put all of his, I would say, heart and soul into these meals to begin creating meals that mattered, things that people would actually want to eat, would want to sit around tables and, and uh, talk with one another and break bread. And it it made a real difference in the morale of the unit and indeed the whole camp. You know, our program, The World, we have a community of vets online, and we asked them for some responses to this story about possibly losing these uh, two hot meals a day. And one common response we got was, suck it up. Some said they'd never had hot cooked meals. What do you say to that? Well, I would be very curious to see what soldier and what unit had never had a hot meal in a combat zone. But I would say that Based on what we've, what we've learned over the years with regard to mental health and with regard to combat efficiency and combat readiness, if, if a cooked meal is a stress reliever for a soldier who's coming off uh, a patrol or pilots who've been in the air for 12 hours, uh, why would we not provide that, especially considering the relative cost efficiency of it? If we're looking at just suck it up, things are a lot easier now and you're too soft a soldier, well, uh, how hardcore do we want to get? Every war, things get a little bit easier. World War One didn't even have antibiotics. So do we want to go back to those days? Because they were really hardcore soldiers in those days, obviously. World War II veterans would have loved the type of uh, uniforms that we have today, the types of moisture-wicking shirts, uh, flame-resistant materials, and so on. Do we want to go back to those days? I mean, how how much is adequate suffering for a soldier, and who's going to be the one to make that decision? To be fair, I should tell you that many of our online community actually agree with you. One Marine infantry vet wrote that those midnight meals were, quote, incredibly important to my psyche. Um, To help listeners understand the difference, tell us about the alternative. What's in an MRE? Well, an MRE is a very calorie-dense meal. It has uh, strange foods with names like pork imitation preformed. (laughs) 
And the Department of Defense is right. I mean, a soldier who eats an MRE will receive adequate nutrition and calories moving forward. The problem with an MRE is not necessarily what's in it, it's what's not in it. And what's not in it is that that single place where soldiers, Marines, sailors, airmen come together, discuss their day, um, basically uh, de-stress, so to speak. Um, MREs just aren't conducive to that. Sort of like the family meal around the table at the end of the day. That's exactly right, and a family is, is probably the perfect way to put it. Army veteran David Brown is now an author and journalist, writing under the name D.B. Grady. He joined us today from WRKF in Baton Rouge. David, thanks for talking to us. Thank you. As we just heard, we received a number of comments on this story from our online community of veterans. One more I want to share. Robert, a veteran from California, texted us saying he was Special Forces, and most of his missions were in the middle of the night. That midnight meal was all the more important, he wrote, because it could always be his last. Join our group of veterans who help make our reporting better by sharing experiences like that one. If you're a vet, or if someone in your family or friend is a vet of the wars in Iraq or Afghanistan, we want to hear from you. To join our group, just text the word RETURN to 69866, and thank you. Also, we want to share with you some of the responses we've gotten to a story we ran earlier this week. It was about Teufelsburg, the Cold War listening station built and run by Americans in West Berlin. U.S. military linguists would listen in on communications from Soviet and other Warsaw Pact militaries. They would then translate it all and relay the important stuff back to the NSA in Washington. The station is derelict now, but our interviews with some of those military linguists caught the attention of others who were there at the time. One listener wrote to say he was a German-English translator at Teufelsburg during the 60s. He recalls sitting in the ruins of the center of the Nazi empire that derived so much power using massive amounts of data about its citizens. He wrote, the East German secret police were doing the same to its citizens on the other side of the Berlin Wall. I seem to remember something like, those who don't learn from history are dot, dot, dot. Another Teufelsburg veteran who contacted us is Mike Matulis. He was a Polish linguist. His note says in part, I remember lots of death threats communicated to the site the last year I was there. That was 1980. From Islamic sources, we were constantly on high alert due to those. Those were the days of the Iranian hostage crisis. I stopped riding the troop bus to work after those started coming in and drove my car instead. People used to say about every fifth person in Berlin was a spy. I assume that was an exaggeration, but there was a lot of us in the Cold War heydays. Thanks for your comments. You can hear our story about the Berlin listening station and post a comment at theworld.org. The end of the month is drawing near, and the Supreme Court still has 11 cases yet to decide. One of the most anticipated is on the Defense of Marriage Act, or DOMA. In the balance is the federal recognition of same-sex marriage, including marriages between Americans and foreign nationals. James Oslin and Carlos Daniel Dos Santos were married in Manhattan in December 2011. Oslin is American, and Dos Santos is from Brazil. Their marriage is recognized by the state of New York, but not by the federal government. And the court's decision on DOMA could change their lives. We start with James Oslin, editor of Savoir Magazine. It was a Sunday when we first met, and I was on the way to work. And I remember it was just an incredibly busy, crazy, crazy time at work. And I was walking around near Times Square, and I suddenly bumped into this wonderful guy. You know, one of those bam 
flashes of somebody you pass on the street and you're like, I want to get to know that person. And I remember that when we were saying goodbye, I stopped and looked at you when you were walking away. Did I turn back and look? You didn't. (laughs) (laughs) You made me feel very comfortable talking to you. I had been here in the States for four months. At that time, I was still very insecure about my language skills. I couldn't place where you were from. Your accent wasn't one that I recognized. It didn't sound Spanish. It didn't sound French. You're the first Brazilian person that I ever knew. From the very first moment, I was ready. (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't. I had a kind of reticence. I was Uh just leaving a 14-year relationship. And I remember there was... One night in particular, and I looked into your eyes, and I said, wow, you really are the one. How did you have the patience to stick around all of these months waiting for me to recognize that? I wanted to stay with you. I didn't want to move back to my country in which, I mean, what I had there. I had my family, which I love very much. I had an apartment that I owned there, but I didn't have a person that I wanted to spend the rest of my life with. And that person was here. We talked about uh, maybe moving to Brazil. I could sponsor you to stay legally in the country. But we didn't know what the future would hold for us there. And I didn't want to risk, uh, you know, you living the States. Uh, you love your job very much. I said, uh, I think the only option we have, it, I will overstay my visa. I had never done anything illegal in my life. It was a, ugh, it was an awful feeling. All of a sudden, I'm living this very public life. I'm the editor-in-chief of a magazine. I'm a judge on a TV cooking show, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm leading all of a sudden this really accelerated, almost exaggerated life. And there you are. Your life is shrinking because of this shadow, this stupid, crazy shadow that is hanging over us. From that moment on, I was constantly worried of suddenly being stopped by a cop and asking for uh, my identity. And uh, I had to stop traveling by plane with you. And you were always traveling on business, so I had to stay behind. And I remember when you were in Los Angeles shooting the Top Chef Masters and you were going to stay there for a month, I decided to board a plane. And that day, the TSA agent asked for my documents. And then I told her, well, I I don't have it with me. I usually don't carry it with me. And then, thank God, she just let me go. And when I told you what had happened, you were very worried about uh, how I would get back to New York. That whole scene represented to me the worst case scenario. And it was the first time where it wasn't just like an intellectual idea or something. It was, this is actually a real risk-taking aspect of who we are together. There is this kind of danger. Yeah, and from that moment, we decided, so we are not going to take that risk anymore. So the Supreme Court is going to be making a decision really soon about the Defense of Marriage Act. And um, our lives could basically change overnight, or they could remain the same. How do you feel about all, the, all of that? 
Uh, it's it's still um, it makes me feel trapped. Nine people are going to decide on the future of our lives. It makes me feel numb. You were telling me, you know, a couple of weeks ago. You know, when you're having an optimistic moment and you're thinking, oh, this is, this is going to get overturned. And basically, that means that our application for a green card is going to go through again, and I'm going to go see my family. In fact, I'm going to go spend a month in Brazil. And I remember saying, Daniel, 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 don't go too far with this. This may not happen. I think the thing that scares me the most is... If it doesn't happen, what are we going to do? Well, one thing I know for sure, I don't ever, ever want to leave apart from you. And if it doesn't happen now, it will happen in the future. That was Carlos Daniel Dos Santos and James Oslin talking about the upcoming Supreme Court decision on the Defense of Marriage Act. It's expected next week. If you want to send a message, you probably dash off an email or a text. Maybe you post it on Facebook or Twitter. But Deepak Singh remembers when the medium for important news in India was the telegram. Back in the late 70s, when I was a kid in India, I remember once my grandfather jumping up from his chair on hearing the word telegram. When he answered the door in a state of panic, a postman with a piece of paper in his hand said, Don't worry, it's good news. A wedding invitation. To my grandfather, the news was not good. The message was from his runaway son, who was marrying a girl of the wrong caste. Telegrams were mostly used to deliver urgent news, a message from a couple who secretly eloped, or a note about a sudden death in family. The service always caused excitement. But now my father calls me in the US from his bedroom in Lucknow, India, on his cell phone to let me know that he's eating mangoes for breakfast. Three decades ago, the Indian Postal Service sent more than 60 million telegrams a day. Today, it's down to just 5,000. Smartphones, text messages and social media sites have made the telegram obsolete. The US ended telegram service in 2006. And after about a century and a half, the telegram is about to become history in India too. The first telegram in India was sent in 1850 and the last one will go out on July 14th. I've never used it myself, but I will miss the idea of telegram service. That's producer Deepak Singh on the imminent end of telegram service in India after 163 years. You're listening to The World on PRI. I'm Carol Hills, and this is The World. If you were in Singapore today, you'd be gasping for air. The smog's worse than ever, according to health officials there. The toxic haze is the result of smoke that's drifting over from fires that are raging in neighboring Indonesia. And it's affecting parts of Malaysia as well. The BBC's Ashley Neem is in Singapore. Ashley, how bad is it? The smoke is still very heavy in the air. When this crisis began four days ago, there was hardly anyone on the streets who was wearing a face mask. But when I was out today seeing commuters go home, more than half of the people are now wearing face masks. The smell is so pervasive. It's not only something that you can observe on the street, but even inside, we can still smell the stench of uh, burnt wood. And the elderly and young people, they're very worried about their health even indoors. So 
preventing yourself from going outdoors doesn't actually help you that much. Now, what's interesting to me is that the source of this pollution is is not what we might expect. It's not industrial pollution. It's actually from these smoldering fires in peat swamp forests in Indonesia on Sumatra Island. Does this happen every year? That's right. This is considered to be an annual event. However, this year there has been no rain. So while normally there is very hot weather, the rain would help clear the pollution. And the Indonesian side, they're waiting and have actually deployed today some helicopters to try and bring on some rain through cloud seeding. And that's not been possible until now, but we're waiting to see the effects of that. We're going to hear a few commuters in Singapore today and see what they have to say. It's quite polluted here. We're finding it difficult to breathe. It's quite hazy as well. I'm surprised that the offices are still open. It's depressing. The whole uh, atmosphere, the environment. Uh, you don't really feel motivated to step out, but you have to. Um, it's been a few days, uh, so uh, starting to worry me. So if it carries on for another few weeks or few months, definitely going to affect me. How long is this expected to last? What's the weather forecast? Well, no rain is in sight at this stage. Some say it could take weeks. The government stresses that we must be prepared that this could go into next month. Many people are worried about there's very little they can do. Many, many people are trying to get out of Singapore this weekend, and that's not only affecting the local community here, but also is going to have a huge impact on tourism. How are the hospitals handling this? Is there an upsurge in the people seeking help? The hospitals have reported that there has been an upsurge of people going to hospital, and this is mainly the elderly and children who are most vulnerable to this, those with breathing difficulties or heart problems. They're most at risk. Ashley, did the smog affect you? Yes, I've really noticed a burning sensation in the back of my throat, and my throat's very dry. It it is described as choking smoke, and that is exactly what it is. It also, if you're outdoors for long periods of time, sometimes you might feel a little bit dizzy, and I've also been carrying a mask with me to prevent some of those particles from being inhaled. The BBC's Ashley Neem in Singapore. Thanks so much. Okay, thank you. Moving on now to a listener-inspired geo-quiz. We've asked some of you geo-texting game players to tell us about your summer vacation plans, and here's one response that really stood out for us. This listener told us about her plans to visit a sloth wildlife sanctuary somewhere in Latin America. I'm really looking forward to just kind of like detaching from everything, you know, We can't really use our cell phones. It's like an adventure. So where in Latin America would you go for an adventure inside a wildlife sanctuary dedicated to sloths? We'll narrow it down for you. We're looking for a Central American nation that borders Nicaragua to its north. This country has worked hard to attract ecotourists, and most of them start their visit at the Juan Santa Maria International Airport. It's located in the city of Alajuela, just west of the capital, San Jose. So can you name this Central American country? We'll give you just a few seconds for this one. Time's up. And here with the answer is the very listener whose summer vacation plans inspired our quiz. Hi, my name is Cosette Madeline. I'm a freshman in high school and I'm 15 years old. I'm from San Jose, California, and I'm going to Costa Rica to stay in the sloth sanctuary with my family. 
So Costa Rica is the answer. Cosette and her family will be visiting the Sloth Sanctuary in southern Costa Rica, near the border with Panama. And they're going there because, as you're about to hear, Cosette is really, really into sloths. Well, sloths are endangered species, so it's kind of a zoo to protect all the sloths <laughs> and just, like, take care of their needs because they're really vulnerable creatures. Sloths are, like, these little furry creatures. They're usually around, like, 10 pounds, and they move really, really slowly. They have, they usually have three or two toes. They, like, kind of naturally hug things at all times. <laughs> they're just these, like, really peaceful, little happy creatures, and they're always smiling. My mom actually was recently telling me and my friends a story. In kindergarten, we were at the Seattle Zoo, and they had a sloth there. And I sat there because I wanted to see if it would move, and I wouldn't leave until closing time. Everyone knows I like sloths, like everyone. I'm sitting in my room right now, and I'm looking around at all of the sloth paraphernalia I have around. Um, I've been drawing, like, sloth cartoons since the sixth grade. And I don't know, all my friends look for sloth pictures or videos to send to me. So they're, they're all pretty excited for me that I get to go. We're taking like the sloth tour. So it's like a three hour tour where we get to go, you know, privately see all the sloths and what they do and play with them. And then they'll just kind of be around. Sloths are like really peaceful, peaceful creatures and they're pretty easy to get along with. So, I mean, we should be able to hold them and play with them a little bit. I've been wanting to go for like so long earlier this year when my parents were like, hey, we should go to Costa Rica and do this trip. And we started looking at the website. I just like burst into tears. I was so excited. I try to not think about it too often because I get way, way, way too excited. <laughs> 15-year-old Cosette Madeline. The whole family is going to spend a few days this summer at a sloth sanctuary in Costa Rica the answer to today's GeoQuiz. If you're going somewhere this summer that could also be a GeoQuiz destination, tell us about it at theworld.org. We leave you today with a bit of new music from a band that's also from Central America. The Garifuna Collective hails from Belize. Its frontman was Andy Palacio. He died unexpectedly five years ago. This song is from the band's first album since then. The title, Ayo, means goodbye in the Garifuna language. The world's theme music was composed by Eric Goldberg. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Carol Hills. Have a great weekend. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the Annenberg Foundation, by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives, GatesFoundation.org, the Carnegie Corporation, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world, MacFound.org, and by the PRI Program Fund, supporting informed risk-taking in public radio programming. Contributors include Ken and Lucy Lehman, who believe that winning workplaces respect, reward, and invest in their employees. Ah!
PRI Public Radio International.